Unity Community of Central Oregon's podcast. So I'm going to talk about the metaphysics of mourning. And I think I'm going to start by telling you a story about some neighbors of mine, uh, Lori and Eric. They just bought this beautiful property on 75 acres, and the ocean is over there, and they built this gorgeous house. And he's a retired doctor, and I think she's a doctor too. And they had a lot of workers on their property, and one day a plumber came to do something, and he was working, and he had a heart attack and died. And uh, they tried to revive him and did CPR, and, and it didn't work. And he was very well loved in our community. Everybody knew him. He was everybody's plumber. And the couple who own this property, the doctors, are so devastated. It was so traumatic for them. And now every time they walk past the place on the property by the septic tank or wherever he was working, all they see is his dead body lying there. And they can't unhook from that image. And because they can't get rid of that image, uh, they're not healing well in their grief process. And so they asked me if I could do something to help them. And I said, yes, absolutely. Let me come to your place, and we're going to do a ceremony. And we're going, to do a, we're going to go to that spot. We're going to call the neighbors, whoever wants to come. We're going to honor his life and his death, and we're going to turn that spot, that little cement pad where he fell down and died, into a sacred space by making an altar out of it, by doing prayers, by doing healing uh, ceremonies, which I'll talk a little bit more about. And this all happened just a couple of weeks ago, and I realized this was such a good example of the metaphysics of mourning. Because what we have in this culture, and when I talk about this culture, I pretty, mean, pretty much mean Western civilization, white European culture, and if you're really going to boil it down, I mean Judeo-Christian culture. Um, what we have here for handling loss and grief, and I don't just mean death, but there are all kinds of losses, which I'll get into in a minute, is essentially nothing. And one of the things that I got so interested in when I decided to go back to school and get credentials so that I could talk about this in the mainstream and work in hospices and hospitals is uh, I was so interested in multicultural approaches to grief. How do they deal with this in India, in South America, in China, in Africa? And so that became a very big part of my work. And what I very quickly noticed, and I'm sure you already know this, is that all those cultures put so much value on the grieving process because they're not afraid of death. And so if you're not afraid of death, you can walk into grief and mourning in a much more healthy way. So the first place that you start is losing your fear of death. How do we lose our fear of death? I only have 20 minutes, so I can't really explain all that. But um, have a near-death experience. That'll do it for you. Or, or study near-death experience and learn about that and, and out-of-body stuff. But you guys already know that, so I need to talk about that. So let's, I want to talk briefly about uh, the different types of losses. Because mostly I work with death, but there are so many other kinds of losses. So, so death is, we know what death is, but we also have losses such as material loss. Your house burns down in a fire. I just came from Santa Rosa, which is where I live, where I think something like 15% of all the houses 
in, their, in our county, I think, were lost in the fire. That's a material loss. Your car breaks down. My RV broke down on the road coming up here. I bought it a year ago, and it was my dream to come up to Oregon and do this speaking gig in my RV, and it broke down the first day and had to be towed to the shop. <laughs> and I had to rent a car so I could continue coming up here. That's material loss. Um, there's functional loss. You lose your eyesight. You lose your ability to walk. You lose your health. There's role, R-O-L-E, loss. You lose your job. You're no longer a CEO. You're no longer a teacher, whatever your job is. Um, you get divorced, you're no longer a wife or a husband. Your child dies. You feel like you're no longer a mother. My child died. I'm definitely still a mother. Um, so there's all these different kind of losses, and we do not have the tools to work with them. So if you are dealing with, with any of this stuff, you might go to a therapist and talk about your pain and, and look for some help, but most therapists are not trained specifically in grief. If you want to have the help of a therapist with grief and loss, you need to go specifically to a grief counselor. You're not going to get much help from your friends because uh, what generally happens is they don't want to hear about it because they don't want it to get on them, and your loss makes them extremely uncomfortable. And so there's a whole other conversation about the language of loss and how to talk to somebody who's dealing with loss and grief, um, which is basically to not talk at all, but to just let them talk. So I'm kind of bouncing all over this play, the place because I want you to know that it isn't just about death, but a lot of the stuff that I talk about really is about death. So if you hear me focusing too much on that kind of loss, just interrupt me and, um, and, and redirect me. So... The thing that's missing is ceremony and ritual. Did you ever notice that the word spiritual has ritual right in it? Yeah. Spy ritual. Um, what you learn from other cultures, I'll give you an example. Has anyone ever heard of a woman named Sabonfu Somme or her ex-husband Maladoma Somme? You know, you know Sabonfu. Um, so this is, uh, they are from East Africa, and they travel all over the world teaching a three-day grief ritual, which is what they do where they come from. Now, in African culture, there's no, they don't value independence and autonomy like we do here. Everything is collective. Everything is done in the village. You would never have a loss, have a funeral, Everyone brings you some casseroles for a week, and then they leave, and you're all alone in your house with your loss. That would never happen in most other cultures. And what they do is the community spends three days honoring their grief. They build altars. They have drumming and singing and dancing, and people are screaming and crying, and they're throwing little... Uh, little icons into the fire to represent their loss and, and there's even a thing where you write the name of uh, this is sort of different but if there's been like a trauma or abuse or a person that you want to disconnect that attachment to because there was trauma and pain you write their name on a piece of paper and pee on it all of that stuff works. And that's the point, is that we, take, we are, need to create ritual objects or uh, representational symbolic objects of our pain in order to move it forward. You cannot describe love. You cannot hold love in your hand. You cannot hold pain in your hand. You can't see it. It doesn't have a physical form. And 
The reason ritual is so important is because you take that pain and you put it in a physical form. So in shamanism, for example, you might take a stone, just a stone from the earth, and in a ceremony, you blow into the stone all your pain and all your grief. <laughs> really hard. And then you might put that stone on an altar and do a ceremony with it and cleanse it. Or you might bury it in the earth because Mother Earth is strong enough to hold all that stuff that you just blew out from your heart. Your body is not strong enough. And that's why we get sick. And, we get, and our bodies fall apart from holding all this stuff in. Um, so that's what we don't have. You, now, okay, let me go back a little bit and talk a little bit about the history of grief. You've heard the term grief work. That term actually came from Sigmund Freud. So he wrote a paper in 1931 called Mourning and Melancholia. And he came up with this idea that the way you deal with mourning and grief is first you go very strongly into your pain. You talk about it. You look at the old memories. You cry. And you really go and feel it. But ultimately, there's a trajectory. And at the end, you're supposed to detach from the lost object or person. That was Freud's idea of grief recovery, that you're supposed to recover. We know now that you don't recover. You recover from a broken leg. Your bone will heal. You recover from the flu. But it's different with grief, because instead of recovering from the loss, you are transformed by the loss. So this Freudian model was the model for 40, 50 years, until about the 1960s, when our culture changed dramatically. And what changed it was, does anybody know? It's pretty wild. Well, drugs as a result of it, yes, but drugs were part of it. What changed it was, in 1950, China invaded Tibet. And all the monks were chased out. The monasteries were burned. The monks went into exile. They went, first they went to India, and they started inching further and further uh, into the developed world. And by the 60s, the monks and all their teachings and Buddhism had come to Europe. And late 60s, it had finally come to America. So if any of you are old enough to remember the beatniks, and the beatniks were into Zen Buddhism. And so then the 60s started to happen, and the beatniks actually became hippies. And we embraced Eastern teachings. And the reason we did is because China invaded Tibet and kicked the monks out. Now, that was clearly supposed to happen for the evolution of consciousness. So it's not a tragedy that that happened at all. The Buddhists love it. They go, yeah, this is what was supposed to happen. And then the drugs came, because the drugs helped us go into other states of consciousness. And so when all that started to change, the religious landscape of America obviously started to change. And with it, the psychology world followed. The psychology world, now back to grief, started changing that Freudian theory and saying, well, maybe instead of just working to close our hearts and cut off our attachments, maybe we should learn from some of this new theology that's coming in, how to work with attachment and work with pain. And all these new theorists and all these new psychologists came in and started doing research and started writing papers and came up with a whole new approach to grief. So now instead of cutting off the relationship, we have what they call continuing bonds. 
And it's a very cool approach because they basically say, your loved ones aren't gone. They're just existing in another dimension. Now that's a pretty, pretty out there thing for psychology to say. And most psychologists won't admit that's what they really mean. But it is what they really mean. And so with that, with continuing bonds, now we have been invited into a whole new way of ritualizing and memorializing our losses. So in China, for example, when somebody dies, in their house they have a little altar. And they keep it up there forever. I thought it was just for a year, but I gave a talk to a, a, a Chinese retirement home in San Francisco with a translator recently. That was pretty amazing. And I asked them to teach me. And what they taught me is there's an altar in every house for every ancestor. They put food on it and flowers on it. They talk to it. They honor it. They pray with it. And they never put it away. So every house has an ancestor altar that's just full of everybody who died. And then I learned from my African teachers what an ancestor actually is. We think of ancestors as people older than us, right? Our grandparents and the people who came before us and died. But spiritually, metaphysically speaking, an ancestor is anything that has ever lived in the universe and has gone on and died before us. In other words, all the spiritual material that goes into creating the universe. So the plants, the animals, everything that's gone through a cycle of birth and death and rebirth is an ancestor because it's all part of one thing. We're all connected, right? So that changed a lot for me too when I realized what the ancestors are. So this brings us back to ritual. So when we do metaphysical approaches to grief and loss through ritual, we're calling in all the ancestors, all the spirits of the animals and the plants and the rocks and the people and everything that makes up that big cosmic soup of which we are part, that is what we need to include in our loss and grief rituals. And you're not going to see that in most mainstream funerals, counseling, support groups, or any of the tools that we have in this culture. Does that make sense? Okay. Hang on a second. So I want to um, talk about suffering. Here's another thing that we learned from the Buddhists. Uh, before I do that, though, I want to tell you something funny. So back to my story about my, losing my RV. This was a huge dream of mine. And this happened just a few days ago. And I've been grieving. I never realized how much I felt grief for an object, for a big machine, you know? But there was so much wrapped up in it, like my identity and look what I've accomplished. And then it's touching all my old unworthiness stuff, like, well, who was I to think I could ever have something like that? And just it's, it's just amazing how all of that happens. So, my parents are both alive, and when I told them what happened to the RV, here's what they both said, which is so indicative of this other limited spiritual view. My mother said, well, you made a mistake when you bought it. Mistakes happen. <laughs> like, no, Mom, I didn't, it wasn't a mistake. There are no mistakes, but that was her view. In her world, you make mistakes. My dad said... Well, you know that guy who looked at it for you, your, your friend's husband? It was his fault. He should have found the, the, the problem. So he goes to blame. So blame, looking for blame, or the concept of mistakes as in that thing should never have happened, is so 
Judeo-Christian old school, non-aware thinking. And that ties right in to these views of suffering that we have. So in, that, in the world of my parents who see loss that way, they assume, these, there's these assumptions that we have about suffering. There's an assumption that all suffering is bad. Oh, so I'm so sorry that happened to you. That should never have happened. You know, a child should never die before its parents. I'm so sorry you married the wrong guy. That kind of stuff. Suffering is bad. You know, and, and with suffering, what happens with the idea that suffering is bad is we scramble to relieve it. So one of the things that we're trained to do in clinical chaplaincy is we do not relieve your suffering. The Judeo-Christian version is, I'm uncomfortable with your suffering, and I need to make it stop right now so that I won't be uncomfortable. So you come to me, and you're crying because somebody died. And what do most people do? Don't cry. Or it'll be better soon. Or he's in a better place now. You did everything you could. All of these things are designed to shut off the suffering. And the suffering person can't shut it off. I can't make your suffering stop. But we don't know this in this culture because we're not taught any other way. So what we're taught is when we see someone cry, we need to make them stop. And this is another interesting thing. Sometimes when you see somebody cry, and it's a very beautiful thing, you might just want to walk over and hug them, right? Put your arms around them. And something that I've learned recently is that that is also a form of stopping. So when, when I'm doing workshops in groups like this and people are crying, early on before I knew this, I would walk over to them and I would just, just put my hand on them while I'm talking. And I realized that that was the wrong thing to do because it stops. So the Western view is that we stop it. The Eastern view is that we work with it. We embrace our suffering. There are four pillars of Buddhism. The first one is suffering exists. The second one is suffering exists for a reason. The third one is there is a way out of suffering. And the fourth one is turn the page and there's a list of eight more things that are, that are the way out of suffering. <laughs> but that's the essence of all of Buddhism right there. Um, so OK. Uh, the other Judeo-Christian view of suffering is that it happens for either one of two reasons. It's either random or it's punishment. So I work with a lot of grieving people, a lot of grieving parents, and I'll give you some examples of some of the stuff that I've seen. Um, I have this one client whose nine-year-old son died from leukemia, and she is absolutely convinced that this happened to her because she had an abortion 20 years ago, and God took the one kid in exchange for the other one. And this woman is not healing well in her grief. And who does she talk to? She can go to a grief counselor. She can go to her clergy. And they're going to just do the same thing. Of they're trying to relieve her suffering. So what I did with her, and here this is the metaphysics of mourning, I met her just when she had sold her house. And it was the house that the, they had, this kid was born in and lived in and died in. And I said, let's ritualize this. Let's go through the house room by room. And I want to walk with you to each room, and I want you to tell me a story about the kid in every room. Oh, this is the room where he took his first step. 
And this was his bedroom. And this is, I remember, he picked out his favorite Batman pillowcase. And this is the kitchen, and he loved spaghetti. And we did this, and we went to every room with Sage. And she, we were both just crying, and it was just so beautiful. And we just cleansed the space so that his energy wouldn't be in that house anymore that she was selling, but was now with her and would go with her to the next house. All these beautiful and happy memories. She also had, this, this kid was a, a wonderful artist, and he had just made hundreds of beautiful drawings. And you know how your kids make so many little art things, and you hang them on the refrigerator, but sometimes you've got to throw some of them away. She didn't want to throw any of them away, of course, but you can't keep all of it. So I said, pick the ones that you want to keep, 10%. And we'll take the other 90% and we'll make it metaphysical. So she did that. We took all the stuff in boxes and we went to the coast. This was in Oregon. And we had a bonfire. And we burned all this artwork in the bonfire, which was not, as Freud would have said, to let go and disconnect from the kid and from the artwork, it was exactly the opposite. It was to give form to that life and to that memory in the form of heat and smoke. This is why in every religion you have fire ceremonies and candles and incense and all that, because the heat and the smoke and the energy of the fire rises up, and we know that the other realms are not up. There's no up and down or any directional thing, but we just use it in language. You know, heaven is up because it's easy to describe that way. So it rises up to heaven. It rises up to the soul of this beautiful child from his mother saying, I acknowledge you. I recognize you. I'm burning this stuff not because I want to get rid of it, but because I want to make a connection to you. I want to open the conduit from me down here on earth and you out there in the universe through the burning of this stuff. And that just completely freed her of all the guilt she had about getting rid of his stuff and throwing away his drawings. The guilt about the abortion, that was, that was beyond my pay grade. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't help her too much with that. You know, um, she, she went to this Bible study group, and they would just fill her head with the most horrible stuff, you know, about sin and punishment. And I said to her, you know, you should let me come to your Bible study group sometime, and she said, no, that would never happen. So, so the positive view of suffering is that our goal with suffering is to just shift the energy. And uh, the, the language I came up with is ventilation versus insulation. So grief and pain and suffering feels very insulated, like you're closing in on yourself, right? And you're just tied up in a knot, and it's all right here in your heart. And you can feel it in your muscles that you're just clenched. That's insulated. Everything closes off. Ventilation is where you open up. That's why breath is so sacred in meditation and in so many practices. It's all about ventilation. These bodies were designed with, with a ventilation system, not just so that we could live and put oxygen in the blood and whatever breathing does, but so that we could create space inside us and around our hearts. And the time that you need to do that the most is when your heart is broken. 
And so ventilation versus insulation. Um, one of my favorite quotes about this in the whole world is from Richard Rohr. Do you guys know who Richard Rohr is? Um, he said, pain that is not transformed will be transmitted. And so that means that if you're walking around with this big pain, like the woman who felt her child died of cancer because of an abortion 20 years ago, if she's not working with that pain to, to take a symbolic, I'll tell you in a second how she might do that. I just thought of that. If she's not working to get that out of her chest and her blood and her cells where it's stuck, it's going to be transmitted. It's going to be transmitted onto her husband and to her friends and to her life. I mean, you know, she couldn't work for years after this happened. Her marriage fell apart. Actually, they stayed together, but it wasn't very good. And um, she got sick because that's where it will go. It will eat away at your relationships, and eventually it will eat away at your own body. So uh, one of the things that actually helped her to, to ventilate that was the burning of the pictures. Um, to, move, to transform pain, you have to give it a physical form. So that's why the shamans use things like stones and something called a kintu, which we're going to actually do in the workshop next Sunday. I have flyers back there. I hope some of you will come. We're going to do lots of rituals like this. So what the shamans do with a kintu is, well, the way we do it is um, we take some rose petals and a bowl and a pitcher of water. And after doing several preliminary processes, each person takes a handful of rose petals and blows into it. Again, the shamans use this blowing thing because the sacredness of the breath and the insulation, right? So it flows through your body. You blow it into the rose petals, your prayers, your intentions, your hopes, your pain, anything that you want to shift. Not that you want to bring something in or get rid of something. It's not linear like that. It's not like, I want to get rid of this pain and bring in peace. It's more neutral than that. It's just that I want to shift this energy because it will naturally, magnetically shift to healing. So you don't have to tell it where to go. So you just put the energy in the, th in the rose petals, you put it in the bowl, you pour a little water over it. Each person does this. And then we take the bowl with the rose petals and we go outside and we pour it into the ground if we're by a river, we put it in a river, wherever we happen to be. And we've removed it from our bodies through this water and given it to the earth, where it will grow, it'll become, it'll water the trees and the plants, and be, the rose petals will decompose, and we give it to the earth. And the earth will use it. The earth knows what to do with the water and the rose petals, right? So it's taking the energy and transforming it. Another good example of that, another metaphysical uh, response to grief is um, from the Mayans. And we don't have time. I wanted to do this here today, but we don't have time. But um, at the workshop I'm doing in Sisters on Tuesday, we'll be doing this. Um, there's a tradition where if you are sitting with a dying person, for example, so let's say you're at the bedside of your mother who's dying, you take a piece of string or yarn, and as you're sitting at the bedside, you wind it up into a little ball. And as you're winding it, you tell the stories of the person's life. I remember when she taught me how to bake a cake. 
I remember when I fell down on my bike and broke my leg. All, what all your memories of your mother are, and you wind it up into this little ball. And so her life story goes into this object. Again, it's creating a symbolic representation of something that has no form, the story of her life. And then when she dies, you put the little ball into her coffin with her or have it cremated with her. So again, it goes to the earth. Unfortunately, bodies and coffins don't go back to the earth anymore like they used to because they put them in concrete boxes, but that's another thing. Um, with cremation, again, the smoke and the heat. And so she carries her story with her to her next life or to the next dimension, which is what we're all doing here all the time. So I revised that process for how to work with grief. So you can take the story of your loss or your trauma and do the same thing with this little ball of string, and you tell your story into the ball of string. Now, you might not want that ball of string to just be full of all that negative stuff, like here's, here's all my trauma in this little ball. So what you can do is then unwind it and rewind the trauma story and replace it with your healing story. And in the end of this process, you have this little ball. And what we do with it, depending where we are, we might burn it in a ceremonial fire, which again, releases it to the spirit world, or um, throw it in a river, depending. Um, what I really like to do with it best, and this is what we're gonna do on Tuesday, is we go outside and we tie our little strings to a tree. So that if there's 20 people, there's, and you tie it and it unravels the ball, and there's this tree with all these beautiful pieces of colored yarn and string hanging there. And everybody's stuff is freed and goes to the elements, goes to the wind. And the strings just stay there forever. And they decompose the sun and the rain and the wind. And I did this at my seminary last year for a, a trauma class and went back a couple months ago. And there were our little strings in the tree just you know, a shadow of once they, what they once were. And this is why, you know, Buddhist flags, so many of us have Buddhist flags hanging on our property. Um, they're meant to be destroyed. That's why they're very fragile, and when you see them in India and Tibet, they're just in tatters. And the whole point of those prayer flags is that they, they hold prayers, but they're supposed to be wiped out by the elements. And you look at that tattered, beat-up old flag, and you go, oh... Uh, it's all about impermanence. And this is the thing that we have to learn with our attachments to the things that we are grieving and mourning. Um, suffering is necessary. It, pain has purpose. It's imbued with meaning and purpose. And impermanence is what we're here to learn. And it's, it, I think in so many ways, it's why we form so many attachments and how, why we have so much pain with all our attachments. So your girlfriend leaves you, you know, your dog dies, all this horrible stuff that we um, experience is so that we can rise up to this higher level of attachment to understand that being attached, it's not a bad thing but we have to let stuff slip through our fingers because it does. And it's nobody's fault. Blame doesn't work. It's never a mistake. Um, it's always just as it should be.
It's exactly what we came here to do. Um, birth and death is a revolving door. You come in, you go out. If you've ever seen a birth and seen a death, you might have recognized that amazing connection. That's why hospice work is so incredible. To see, to be sitting with somebody, watching their breath patterns change and breathing along with them. That's what I do is I match my breathing to theirs. And I can actually journey with them when I do that. And I'm just watching the labor of death, which is just like the labor of birth, less painful by far. And, and there's this great labor in it of this releasing the soul from the body, putting the soul in the body, putting the soul out of the body. It's this beautiful, um, endless cycle that is never, oh, I'm not going to say it's never sad. I mean, attachment, we do have attachments. Um, we have to form attachments. We have to be deeply vulnerable in order to feel completely. And here's where we get into semantics problems. There's a difference between attachment, um, sorry, non-attachment and detachment. So detachment means that you care, you really have nothing on that thing. I use this in one of my books as an example. I am completely detached from football. Okay. <laughs> okay. It means nothing to me. I could, I, if football disappeared tomorrow, I wouldn't even notice. <laughs> But some people are very attached to it, right? So that's detachment. It's not a part of my universe. Non-attachment means that I really like football, and I have a favorite team, and I watch all the games, and I'm really into it, but I don't really care who wins or loses. You see the difference? That's non-attachment. But being the person who like bets tons of money on your team and goes to the games and goes crazy and beats people up in the stands if their team loses, all, that's like over-attachment. So it's, it's really important to know that there are subtle differences. And so non-attachment is, let me think of another example. Um, well, I'm struggling with non-attachment right now with my, the loss of my RV. I mean, this may sound so tacky and material, but it's really, it's really hard for me. And I have, like, I'm angry at it. Like, why did you do this to me? And it's like going back to all this unenlightened stuff. And I have to look at it and push my way through it by breathing and ventilating. And I'm going to do uh, a ceremony for it later this week. And the ceremony releases it out of your body. Now, I've run into a lot of people who don't want to do ceremony because they don't want to let go. They're afraid that it means, for example, let's use the woman who burned her son's artwork. Some people would not want to do that because it represents a final letting go. They don't understand the metaphysical aspect of it, of shifting the way you look at it. It's, um, people will say, no, I don't want to blow my pain of my husband's death into these rose petals and bury them in the earth, because it's like I'm putting my husband away. It's like I'm forgetting about him. And you know, trying to convince someone who thinks that otherwise, well, you can't. You know, that's like trying to talk somebody out of their theology, which we may all like to do that, uh, but we can't. <laughs> Not any more than we like them to talk us into their theology. Any questions, comments? Yes. 
That would be you. I don't know your name, or I would have oh, said yeah, you. Sorry, no, it's, it's a tough situation. <laughs> I can't see you. And I you know. know my name. <laughs> uh, Boy, where does that leave us, huh? <laughs> no, I was thinking the uh, non-attachment it comes in handy for things like politics. <laughs> oh, yes. It's very easy to get. I keep struggling with getting caught up in it, and oh, I, I all I think is that, oh, things are going, you know. And, and then try to say, okay, I can't do that anymore. And I stopped sharing things on Facebook for two days. And then it's like, oh, wait, I got to share this. This is important. And then, so yeah, it's like, it's a struggle. I am so with you on that. That is like the story of my life right now, too. <laughs> and I, I bravo for you for staying off of Facebook for two days, because I couldn't do that. <laughs> I don't know anybody's names. So, yeah. I thought of another quote that I really liked from um, Carrie Fisher. She said, take your broken heart and... Turn it into art. Take your broken heart and turn it into art, which is pain that is not transformed will be transmitted. Take your broken heart and turn it into something, into anything. What a lot of people, there's also something in psychology, again, in the modern new version of grief theory called complicated grief. Have you ever heard of that? So there is... You've probably heard of the five stages of grief. Just erase that from your mind. That's not true. Um, the, that theory has been proven. Her research was false. I mean, I love Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, but that five stages thing was never meant to be taken the way most people take it. It was done um, from some very unscientific research she did with some dying people, and she observed that several of them went through these stages, you know, um, anger, deni denial, anger, you know that, I can't remember what they are. I've turned it off in my mind so much I can't remember it. Um, anyway, it got very popular and people started to attach it to the grief process. And so, and I have seen doctors in hospitals, oncologists, say to somebody, oh, you're just in the anger stage of grief, which is just the worst thing you could ever say to anybody. There are no stages. However, there is a trajectory and what we have now is something called um, tasks of grieving. The work that you have to do, your task, like you have to sweep the floor and wash the dishes and do the laundry, it's kind of like that. And the tasks, there's something called the six R's of grieving. I can't remember all six offhand. But the first thing you do is recognize the loss. And some people can't do that. Some people, um, I had a, a man, his three-year-old son was killed in a car crash. Um, the mother was driving, and she was drunk, and the kid wasn't in a car seat. So here's the dad grieving this three-year-old, and he, this guy wasn't very mentally stable to begin with, but when I met him, he had been going to the son's grave every day for three years, demanding that God bring him back. So that's not recognizing the loss. Oh, it's time. God, I'm going on and on. I could go on. Let me, let me shift to the uh, shameless commerce uh, portion. I want to see you guys back there, and there's going to be a lot more of this this week. I came here for two weeks to Central Oregon, and I'm doing a bunch of talks and presentations. So come see me back there about that. Did you want to say something? I just wanted to talk more about what you're going to do. Oh, okay. Um, so Tuesday and Sisters, we're doing a mini grief workshop where we're going to do that string thing and a couple of guided journeys and... Uh, you'll hear a lot of what I just said again, but we'll do more actual processes. 
Thursday, I'm speaking at the hospital at St. Charles. It's for the doctors and nurses, but it's also open to the public, and that's a topic called Interfaith Conversations with the Dying and the Bereaved. If you are a minister, if you're interested in how do you talk to people of different theologies, this is a great thing, and, it, and it's free, I think. Um, Oh, tonight, tonight, five o'clock, I'm gonna be at the Spiritual Awareness Community. They meet at the Rosie Barris Center. Again, if you're interested in theology and God and prayer and religious history, this is a really cool talk. It's called God, A New Story. And it talks about like the roots of where we got this guilt and punishment thing from Western religion and um, how we misunderstand things like the law of attraction and how that, uh, this, I could go into this forever, but it's a really cool discussion of religious history, um, critical analysis of scripture, very cool stuff if you're into that stuff. And then Sunday, a week from today, is the full-blown grief workshop, which is a four-hour workshop where we do a bunch of ceremonies. We do some art therapy processes. We do some family dynamic mapping where you look at the loss that you experienced and how it shifted your relationships with your loved ones around that loss. So it, it, it's very deep stuff. So it's a lot of stuff. I got a busy week. Okay, thank you.